So Jason, would you come up and uh, say just uh, introduce this section and pray for George? I don't know what George has in mind for this section, um, but as George said, in my experience with Antioch, the, the topic and the things he showed us 15 years ago, as we began to wrestle things about apostolic leadership, have been um, very impactful for me personally, and I think have helped me understand some of the work that we're doing in Turkey. So I, I'm looking forward to that. I know I am uh, a little bit antsy, just to confess that, to go much deeper than we're able to go. But to go deep, you, you've got to get ready for it. So I, I think this is a is a good rehearsal reminder for some of the things that we all know, um, the truths that we uh, that really make a difference are things that we have already had somewhat revealed and, and it's confirmed. So I think this could be a confirming time for us. So let's pray together for George and for ourselves. Communication is not just about saying the right words in the right way. It's about hearing. And um, let's pray for that. Spirit of the living God, we need you. We need you to speak. We need to meet with you. We need you to have your way. So now anoint George, bring order to his thoughts, catalyze things in us that you are ready to start with. Deposit things in us that we will need to draw upon later. Remind us and confirm things that, that we know or have known and need to be reinforced. Reveal to us what we do not know but must have. And in those areas, breathe into existence something new. Lord, we are glad to be yours. We're glad to be together. Thank you for the stewardship that Antioch has carried in these things. And we offer that to you. Let your kingdom come. We are seeking it. Let your kingdom come. In our day, we we just long to know you, to follow you. We don't mind waiting on you. It is our request, Spirit of God, that you would deliver us from delays caused by us. Mm-hmm. Breathe upon us. What we want to do in this session is pick up where we left off yesterday. We're talking about um, new biblical characteristics of New Testament apostolic leaders. What are we talking about when we talk about apostolic leaders? What does the New Testament tell us? Um, before we pick up the list, I want to just say a word um, that stems from a conversation Jason and I had uh, yesterday after the after the session. 
we got to talking about the word free church, and I used that word um, yesterday afternoon to describe a certain uh, kind of church. And Jason very helpfully pointed out two things about that term. Number one, uh, in our context here in the States, there's just an awful lot of people who don't really know what that means, free church. And there are also some contexts, particularly in Europe, where that can be a negative term. So um, let me say what I mean by free church, and let me suggest a couple of other um, terms for that. One other term would be non-denominational church. Another term would be independent church. So what we mean by this kind of church is a church where the understanding is that the local congregation is um, um, led by its own leaders without reference to any other kind of structure. In other words, it's not part of a denomination. It's um, non-denominational or independent. And... um, of course, Antioch Network was born out of this kind of church. So it's, it's, it's not completely easy to find what is the right term there, even to use um, evangelical church, that there are all kind of denominational churches that would identify as evangelical, to use charismatic church. There are also all kind of denominations that would um, identify as charismatic so we're talking about a church that stands on its own organizationally. That doesn't mean it stands on its own attit- from its attitude. We don't mean that in a negative way. We're trying to... Uh, but, but the reason it's important in the discussion of apostolic ministry is that we pick up symbols um, um, spontaneously. Often we don't think about the symbols that uh, influence us. And if the church, the, if the word church brings up a symbol that pictures only this, this congregation and then this congregation and then this congregation with no connection, if that's the symbolic framework that we are formed with, um, it'll, it could give us some problem with understanding the translocal nature of the apostolic calling, which ultimately requires an, uh, an organizational structure. Now that organization, some of us, even the thought of organizational structure, we, you know, hesitate, and it doesn't have to be bureaucratic, but there has to be organizational structure that releases. Organizational structure is essential for order. It's a biblical gifting. It's a biblical ministry. So um, I'm thankful to be able to, um, to, to say that because it feeds right into the next characteristic of apostolic leaders that we discover in the New Testament. And that is, and by the way, this is point number five if you're taking um, notes, apostolic leaders are sent by God. Apostolic leaders are sent by God. We talked yesterday about apostolic leaders being called, apostolic leaders being given vision. Apostolic leaders are sent. They are people who are sent. John 20, 21. 
Jesus speaking to the first apostles. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the root meaning, actually, of the word apostle is one who is sent. An apostle is someone who is sent. You can add to that someone who is sent with a message or someone who is sent on a mission. But an apostle is, by definition, someone who is sent, sent out. Now, that is the um, pattern we see in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 13.4, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were sent out from Antioch. Now, they came back to Antioch after that first missionary journey, but as you see Paul's ministry developing, you, we find in Acts less and less reference to Antioch, and that's appropriate because he was being called, he was being sent out. Um, another uh, passage I want to reflect with you on is Acts chapter 20 again. So if you have your Bible, turn with me again to Acts chapter 20 just to um, give a little bit more um, picture to what we're talking about. In Acts chapter 20, verse 36... Paul meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus and explaining to them, among other things, that they weren't going to see him again. Um, Verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. So here is Paul meeting with the elders of a church um, where he had been based for three years, where he had invested his life, where they had been linked together in the Lord, but the time had come for him to leave because he was being sent, the translocal that we are referring to. And then um, Romans 15, just to give one more um, reference on this. This is one of my favorite, this is one of my favorite uh, descriptions of, um, you know, what an apostolic leader is and how an apostolic leader functions. Romans 15, beginning at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Now, can you picture someone who is pastorally gifted saying that? There's no more work for me to do around here. (laughs) Well, somebody who's pastorally gifted saying, you know, what are you, what are you thinking? Don't you know that this marriage is in difficulty? Don't you know that this situation is... You know, someone who's pastorally gifted sees, you know, five lifetimes worth of work in these regions. But since there's no more work for me to do in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, Romans, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. 
I'm going to come to see you in Rome, but, you know, I'm going on to Spain. So on my way to Rome or Spain, I'm going to stop by and see you. To be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a little while, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. <laughs> so I'm on my way to Jerusalem, but pretty soon I'm going to be on my way to Spain. But on my way to Spain, I'm going to stop by and spend some time with you. Do you get the point? This is, this is part of the calling. This is part of the calling. Um, okay. Next point, point number six, sixth characteristic. Apostolic leaders initiate new works of God. Apostolic leaders initiate new works of God. There is a calling to initiate. Point number seven. Apostolic leaders lay foundations for these new works. So there's the calling and gifting to initiate. There's the calling and gifting to lay foundations of the works that have been initiated. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. And a new Bible. I can't get through it as fast as I can my own. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Now, that's inherent in the calling of being sent. If we're being sent, if we're pioneering, if we're called to keep going, we have laid foundations, but others are going to be building on those foundations, and that can make us nervous sometimes. Uh, but we need to walk in the maturity of realizing we can't do everything. And if we're going to initiate, there are going to be others who are gifted to build on that foundation. Let each one take care how he builds on it. So, obviously, the foundation of the church generally is Christ. After Christ, the twelve representing, of course, the, 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 also the scriptures. So that's the foundation upon which we're all built. But each new work of God, each new work of God must have its own foundations laid. Now, the gifting to lay foundations brings with it the gifting to repair foundations. So I think it's safe to say that every new work of God, when the foundations are laid, there are some um, faults in the foundation. It's almost unavoidable because you're starting with something new. You're birthing something new. And so there's the need to be able to revisit the foundations that have been laid and make um, repairs, adjustments, alterations to those foundations. That's also true of older works. The need for there to be repair to the foundations. Apostolic leaders are called to foundations. They are foundational kind of people. They're people who think in terms of foundations. 
I had um, a brother once say to me something that I was very fulfilling to me because he and I had served together in a ministry for many years and it came time in that ministry when it was really clear to me that there needed to be the readjusting of foundations. And there was a lot of resistance to that. And this particular brother said to me on one occasion, George, everything that you said is what we're now doing. And what he, he said that 10 years after the fact. So what was he actually saying then? He was saying, George, you were seeing faults in the foundation that needed to be addressed. And now looking back on it, we can see how much those alterations needed to be made. So this is another part of this gifting. You tend to look in the future you tend to say, what we're doing right now is going to have the following consequences. If we do this now, five years from now, it will have this consequence. Ten years from now, it will have this consequence. If the Lord wires you in that way, be ready to draw on the likeness of Christ in you when others can't see it. Because it's part of the calling and the gifting to lay foundations and to repair foundations. Okay, uh, characteristic number eight. Apostolic leaders develop new leaders for these works. So we have the birthing of new works, we have the laying of foundations, and we have the developing of the leaders for those works. And the reference there, we won't read it, is Acts 14.23. Paul and Barnabas revisited the churches and established elders in the churches. Now here's, here's, a, here's a crucial point. Here's a crucial point. In the process of birthing a human being, The birthing takes place fairly relatively quickly. The bringing of that child to maturity takes a lot longer and is a lot more costly. In fact, when is it finished? I was telling some people just yesterday about my own mother. She died a year and a half ago at age 97. I was visiting her in the senior home that she was staying in. And I went to have breakfast with her. She, was, she had her little apartment. I was staying in the guest room. And I knocked on the door, no answer. I knocked on the door more, no answer. I knocked on the door really hard and I heard my mother call out, I have fallen. So I got the housekeeper, we opened the door, my mother's sitting in the bathroom. She'd fallen in the middle of the night. She couldn't move. She'd sat there for four hours, 97 years old. Medical people came in. 
ambulance, stretcher. Then the medical person comes out to me. I'm standing out in the other room. The medical person comes out to me and says, George, your, Mr. Miley, your mother wants to see you. So I'm thinking, wow, my mother wants to see me. She's been sitting on the bathroom floor for four hours, unable to move. She wants to see me. I think I want to hear what she has to say to me. So I go in and I say, Mom, what do you want to say? She said to me, George, the ticket for your breakfast is on the shelf next to my chair. Go have your breakfast. It's free. It comes with the room. But you know something? She's still mothering. Still mothering. So how long, what, what does it take to bring a work of God to maturity? And may God, well, apostolic gifting has immature expressions as well as mature expressions. And an immature expression of apostolic ministry is wanting to birth something without paying the price of bringing it to maturity. And a key role of bringing it to maturity is to establish and reproduce ourselves in the leaders who are going to carry the leadership of that new work. And until there are leaders there who can carry the responsibility of that new work, we are not yet free to just let it go. It's a lot more fun to start something new than it is to pay the price to bring what we have already birthed to maturity. So the developing of new leaders. So um, a key component of apostolic gifting is the ability to recognize the potential of these new leaders and build into their lives that they might grow in the maturity or bring to the place of maturity where they themselves can take over more and more of the work. That's the process of parenting. That's the, pro that's the joy of seeing your children come to adulthood and not need you anymore. And by the way, do you see the great of God scenario where parents have the maturity to step back and allow their children to move into adulthood and adult children have the maturity to honor the parents who did that for them. And so this is God's pattern that we honor our parents and that we honor our children. And in that process, new works of God are brought to stability. Okay, point number nine. Now, this is an important point. They're all important. Apostolic leaders are entrusted by God with a specific area of influence. 
Apostolic leaders are entrusted by God with a specific area of influence. So it's crucial that we discern what is the area that God has called us to. And move without um, hesitation into that area. But at the same time, recognize an area that we are not called to and honor those who are called to that area. Now, an example of this, Galatians 2, verse 7. Galatians 2, 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So Paul recognized he had a special calling and anointing to the Gentiles. Peter had a special calling and anointing to the Jews. The recognition of that uh, difference and the um, honoring of that difference was a key part of Paul's apostolic ministry. And sometimes these different areas are geographic. Sometimes they are relational. Sometimes they have to do with a message. We get back to a little bit of our discussion this morning that there can be even among us different ones that are called that are given by God uh, different messages or different part of the message. So we honor those in the message that God has given them, or we honor those in the geographical area that God has called them to. So just the sense that. There is the entrusting by God with different areas of influence. Uh, Characteristic number 10. Apostolic leaders can provide oversight to works they did not start. Apostolic leaders can provide oversight to works they did not start. Romans 1.13. I want you to know, brothers, in Rome, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So this church in Rome was not one that Paul had planted. He'd never been to Rome. But there was the sense that God had a deposit to be made into that church through him. Now, this, of course, can only be done when the relationships are appropriate and in order. And we can't move into another context without being invited in. But it does highlight the need for this kind of ministry. does highlight that need. 
Point number 11, or characteristic number 11. Apostolic leaders live out the crucified life. Apostolic leaders live out the crucified life. Anita read for us yesterday, I think it was, a beautiful example of that from um, 2 Corinthians 11. The Corinthian epistles are full of this. I'd like to just read to you from 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 7. You know, some people have life verses. I don't have a life verse, but I do have several passages that have just, without me um, deciding on it, have followed me through my um, ministry life. And this is one of them, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That is a great truth. Not only for apostolic ministry, but for every ministry. Not only for ministry, but for the Christian life. So let's revisit it. Let me give you the words of my former translation. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. That the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal body. In other words, Christian ministry is the experience of God's life flowing through me. If God's life is to flow through me, Christ's death must work in me. If I want to avoid Christ's death, I will block the flow of life. Now, this is so important that Paul goes through, makes another pass at this, verse 11. <laughs> For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. You want to sign up for that? We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Want to be a channel of God's life? It sure is worth it. You know, this whole thing of death, I don't want to get it, but, you know, just to say this, I have been crucified with Christ. What part of me has been crucified? The old man, the old man has been crucified. Anybody going to be sorry about that, that the old man has been crucified? What a glorious gift that the old man has been crucified. 
Lord, this old man that's full of darkness, full of selfishness, full of greed, full of lust, full of selfish ambition, that old man has been crucified. Death works in us. Life works in you. Apostolic leaders live out the crucified life. Characteristic number 12. Apostolic leaders become spiritual fathers and mothers. 1 Corinthians 4. Here we are back um, at this uh, picture that's come to us several times now already. 1 Corinthians 4. 14 through 16. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. When I was 19 years old, I dishonored my father. I treated him with contempt and I rebelled against his authority. Now, my father provoked that because my father was a rageaholic. He was dominating. So he provoked that. But that's not my responsibility, what my father did. I'm responsible for my response. And I sinned against my father. And in sinning against my father, I sinned against my heavenly father. Because my heavenly father created me, a human being, and placed me in a human context with authority structures in place. None of those authority structures are perfect. None of them. Because they're all part of the human brokenness, including my parents. But that's not my responsibility. My responsibility from my Heavenly Father is honor your father and mother. Now, I did not honor my father. And that sin produced consequences in me. Because that's what sin does. When I honored my, dishonored my father and rebelled against his authority, I made myself my own father. Once you remove your earthly father, then you're your own father. That didn't work. So I started looking for substitute fathers. And there were two or three relationships 
where there were people very close to my own age, and I kind of slotted them into that huge need in my life for a father. And that resulted in more dysfunction and more pain and more disappointment. And the Lord in his great grace brought me to the point of bringing that sin against my father to the cross. Lord Jesus, I have dishonored my heavenly father by dishonoring my earthly father. And I bring that sin to your cross. And I pray for your cleansing. And I pray for your healing. And I pray for your transformation within me. And I now stand before you and honor my father and honor my mother. When there is the father wound, we will have problems with authority any authority and the father wound is a key part only God knows to what extent but is a key part of ruptures within the church I remember one occasion during the prayer days in Germany when one of the sisters, I mean, we had an open prayer meeting like this, and there were people from different Christian streams, and this one's sister just vented uh, very ungodly things about another stream. And there were people from that stream in the meeting, and this very wise woman from the stream that had just been treated with contempt said, It is crucial that all of us make peace with our roots. So why are we talking about all this? There is inherent in the apostolic ministry once we give birth, once we're raising up leaders we grow into the role of spiritual fathers and mothers. We need to know how to carry that. If we are not reconciled with our own father and mother, we will carry that wounding and we will carry that dysfunction. And it will hurt us in functioning under other authorities. Because we will think an authority has to be perfect or an authority has to be right. It's not about being perfect. It's not about being right. It's about honor. A key part of love is honor. I honor the church. Doesn't mean I agree with everything, but I honor the church. I honor the church's authority. I honor the governmental authority. I honor my parents' authority. There's a beautiful word that Jason gave us yesterday from one of his friends. Look for every opportunity to submit. There's no one who submitted more than Christ. 
to a form of honoring. Another thing we need to know when we walk in spiritual father and motherhood is we become a lightning rod for those who carry the father wound. We become a lightning rod for them. So be ready for that. And when you encounter that, begin to parent <laughs> in the healthy way. Love them. Give them space. Be available to them when they want it. Give them freedom when they don't want it. Apostolic leaders become spiritual fathers and mothers. And this leads into point 13. Apostolic leaders function collegially. Especially with other five-fold ministers. Now, the immature expression of the calling to initiate is self-will and independence and selfish ambition. Look what I've done. <laughs> That's the immature expression. The mature expression is a beautiful humility formed in Christ-likeness that longs to submit and honor others. I'm thinking of the words of the apostle now. Let each of you esteem the others better than yourselves. So can you see a picture? Here, can you see a picture? What if we had a room full of apostolically gifted leaders? And the characteristics of the group were each one was seeking to esteem the other better than himself or herself. Now suppose among those apostolic leaders there were prophets. So each one was seeking to esteem the other better than themselves. Suppose there were teachers and pastors and evangelists. I believe that apostolic leaders are not called to be lone rangers. I don't believe we're called to be Lone Rangers. I don't see any Lone Rangers in Christ playing for his church. We're called to koinonia. We're called to covenant. We fall into the trap of wanting to be right. So we have a quarrel. And we're convinced we're right. And we're thinking, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus who was right. <laughs> so we have this quarrel and we have this rupture and we're convinced we're right. We say to Jesus, who was right? And Jesus says to us, my desire for you was to love one another. What are you going to say? We're called to communion. We're called to communion. And the mature expression of apostolic ministry is the capacity to function in communion. Esteeming one another is better than yourselves. Submitting to one another in the grace of God. 
And this brings us to the last characteristic I wanted to mention. Apostolic leaders give leadership to reconciliation and unity throughout the church. The Lord Jesus is grieving. from our divisions. He is raising up leaders who will give leadership to the repairing of the divisions. I believe this is a key ministry of apostolic leaders. Of course, it's a ministry for all of us why apostolic leaders singled out? Because apostolic leaders tend to have a fairly wide level of influence, a wide area of influence. So there are people who look to apostolic leaders. Now, when we have this apostolic leader and this apostolic leader and they are living together in communion, honoring one another, esteeming one another. Then all of a sudden that opens the way for their networks or their sphere of influence to also come together because the leaders are loving one another. Now here's another apostolic leader, suppose three of them. So this is how the kingdom of God, this is how unity grows. Unity grows as leaders love one another and therefore open the way for their spheres of influence also to love one another. And often this is done symbolically. Often all it takes is a symbolic action, a symbolic step back to the concept of honor. Symbolism can be used to honor. And it can open it can open awesome doors. And I think this is a call. I know this is a call for some of us in this room and I think, I, I believe it's part of apostolic ministry. We care for the church in this way. How do we care for the church? One way that we care for the church is give leadership to the area of reconciliation or leadership uh, in the area of um, bringing these spheres of influence together. Well, brothers and sisters, that concludes my list of characteristics of... Um, what we see in the New Testament that are characteristics that define apostolic leaders. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, seal to our hearts and minds, we pray, that which has been spoken that is from you and remove from our memory 
that which has just been wood, hay, and stubble. We bow before you, Lord Jesus, our great apostle. Teach us your ways. Provide what your church needs. Lead us in the way you want us to go. We bless you and praise you together. Our Father, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Don't go away, George. Um, I wonder if, um, if you'd be willing, without a break at this point, to just entertain some uh, a little bit of dialogue with uh, people here. Um, I, I think there's a lot that touched in with people and uh, with all of us certainly has with me. And um, I, I think the best time for us to have some dialogue about it is right now. If that's if you got the energy for it, I know you pour yourself out. No, I I'm, I would be. If you ask me to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> no, I, I would be happy to do that. I'd okay. Be happy to do that. All right. Yeah. Good. I, I, I've been watching the radar map, so this is a good time. To <laughs> this is a weather-related. The, weather the one thing we would ask. The one thing we would ask is that we uh, repeat the questions for the recording. Okay. Just so that uh, we can uh, get all of that uh, discussion. There. Yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty new to the Antioch Network, but one of the themes I keep hearing is reconciliation, as you've touched on. But I'm, I'm just wondering, in terms of this apostolic ministry, at what point do you kind of get to where it starts to become compromise that is unhealthy and destructive? Okay, the question is, you know, we've heard a lot about reconciliation, at what point does it become compromised and, and no longer really helpful? And um, I think, Brent, that you are referring to uh, the different Christian traditions. Are you referring to that? Well, I'm thinking specifically of uh, some of the, the churches in um, Canada that I know where um, they've adopted things that are, are biblically wrong. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. You know, churches that have adopted things that are biblically wrong. Um, obviously that is an area that uh, requires great discernment um, you get into the question of what is a church and what is not a church mm -hmm. um, because not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian how are you going to uh, make that distinction so I think we have to start off by saying only God can make that distinction and for us to declare that something's not a church, we have to be pretty uh, sure. Now, this was, by the way, the root or the cause of the um, formulation of the historic creeds. The Nicene Creed, for example, that we use in the morning. That was formed by apostolic leaders uh, who saw error coming into the church, error being braced by the church, the church being uninformed about that error. And so you get uh, leadership coming together and, and, and articulating what is the core apostolic faith. And so that's why uh, using the creeds can be a great help 
in, again, establishing that foundation. So, I mean, I don't want to get into a lot of specifics about that. Certainly any uh, denial of the uniqueness of Christ, mm -hmm. any denial of the deity of Christ. Um, you know. Now, let me say more by going on the other side. Um, uh, my own walk at this point is from um, a whole <coughs> tradition in the church that has become more and more liberal in its view of scripture, more and more um, um, a watered-down view of Christ. Um, and all of that is resulting in um, even the ordination of people who have left their spouse and entered into a homosexual relationship, that kind of thing. Now, um, you know, you get into the point, is that the church, is that not, not the church? Again, be careful with that. What has happened, in fact, is out of that context, a whole renewal movement is right now being born of people saying, we want to return to the apostolic faith. And so out of that um, compromise there has been a whole new a renewal movement that's born. Not that all the problems are solved, they're not all solved. So, for sure, there are, um, when we talk about reconciliation, when we talk about honoring one another, when we talk about being called to communion rather than being right, there is a place of apostasy that we need to identify. We need to be careful with that. We need to be gracious with that. Um, but at the same time, we need to be clear when that's the case. And it, that's a decision we don't want to make on our own. It's a decision that we want to make together with other godly leaders. And another key point in all that is how do we negotiate that? So let me just give you one word. And there's obviously so much we can say to all this. Let me just give you this one word. And the word is contempt. Now here is the absolute awesomeness of Jesus. Jesus taught, You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not murder. I say unto you, and he went on to talk about anger. Then he went on to talk about contempt. So Jesus teaches us that contempt and anger are sins of violence. Let me say that again. Murder is a sin of violence. Anger is a sin of violence. Contempt is a sin of violence. Now, in our culture right here, in the public discourse, contempt is predominant. Contempt is just considered normal, even by people who are representing Christian positions or so-called Christian tradition. So as we negotiate these things, it's crucial that we do so in Christ-likeness, that we trust God not to, to free us from anger and contempt and speaking evil and uh, 
But addressing what is true, speaking to what is true, standing for what is true, and then trusting the Holy Spirit to bring renewal. And one other thing I'll say, there are traditions in the church that are centuries old. There are churches that are 10 years old. Our local congregation that's 10 years old or 20 years old or 50 years old, what will its history be if it lasts 1,500 years? There will probably be some things in there that aren't so pretty. So for sure in the history of the church, there has been all kinds of sin, all kinds of error, all kinds of things that have grieved the Lord. So God is calling us into that situation to speak truth, but at the same time to speak with love and to bring healing. To bring healing. So much that could be said on that, but maybe that gets us started. Thanks for that good question, friend. George, can you talk point number seven? brought to mind a statement of D.N. Davis's that's always been very helpful to me. If you're not apologizing, you're not leaving. <laughs> you talk about the tension of making, being willing to move and initiate and make mistakes versus obviously in maturity. You don't want to be doing that. What is that? Well, that's a great uh, question. The question is um, um, Dan Davis, who's a spiritual father among us, um, was, has been, and still is in, in some of our lives. He said, if you're not apologizing, you're not leading. So, help me again. What is the difference? So that, to me, that means if you're not pushing, when you're initiating, you're going to be making mistakes, offending people. And so, if you're in the place where you've you know, gone years without apologizing, you're probably not pushing the boundary. As, right. But at the same time, you know, you don't want to be, that's not our goal, it's to make mistakes and offend people. Right. So just, I'm just wondering, you know, can you speak from your experience or just how do you, how do you uh, see that kind of tension of, of taking risks but uh, hopefully growing them? Okay, that, that's a great question. So let me see if I can condense that for the recording. If you're not apologizing, you're not leading, which means if you're leading, you'll be making mistakes and you'll be offending people. So go ahead and do that and, and, and be sure to apologize. <laughs> I'm not trying to, but, you know, what is the right balance between the need to lead and the need to, in leading, inevitably offend and then holding back not to offend? I think um, the process of maturing involves this. First of all, it involves us hearing more and more accurately the Lord. So in the immature expression of leading or initiating, how much are we initiating um, that is really the call of God and how much are we initiating that's just coming from us now I, I want to this gives me a chance to say you know this whole thing of giving give birth to 
give birth to uh, an Isaac, do not birth an Ishmael, I want you to know that I have given birth to Ishmael. And right now, there is a work in Germany that I was the leader of the team that gave birth to that work. This is back in the ship days. And that, that work is still going on. And it's anybody involved in that ministry will tell you how crucial it is. And yet I know in my heart it was an Ishmael. Because it was born out of my own sin and selfish ambition and ungodliness. And God spoke to me, I can, I can still remember the day, I can still remember the day when God spoke to me from James 3. Um, um, if you have bitter jealousy, for James 3, uh, 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spirit, unspiritual, demonic. It is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And so, be careful, be careful in initiating not to create disorder. If God is in it, God doesn't want disorder. Now, I'm not trying to suggest some kind of perfect situation, but the discernment of what is of God. Then secondly, as we mature, we mature in our ability to honor other relationships. So people who... So, the first thing we do is ask ourselves, when I take this, when I take this initiative, who am I going to offend and who do I need to check with? So I can initiate something tomorrow and offend 10 people. Or I can wait and go to each of those people and talk to them about it personally and, you know, help them to understand, get their input, honor their input. I'm not necessarily saying we take every input, but we are preparing the way. We, we, we are being wise. We are being humble. We are honoring one another. And I, again, I'm not suggesting that this will solve all problems, but it paves the way. So another mistake we make in initiating is we're trying to be too fast. Why are we in such a hurry? Now, another um, part of this is when someone is offended, Again, the maturity of knowing how to address that person, how to speak to that person, how to go to that person and hear that person. Remember when Jesus taught, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. Now sometimes when your brother has something against you, it's your brother's immaturity. So we have to be able to recognize that as well. So, you know, I, I don't want to go on too long, but I, I, we need to be freed. This also came up in some of our discussion. We must be freed from the opinions of other people. Because if I'm not free from the opinion of other people, somebody else is put off with me. 
I may be totally right and it may be totally their issue. And if they're being put off with me, cripples me, then I need to mature in that area. So being free from the opinion of other people does not mean that I'm free from loving. Owe no man anything except to love one another. So what do I owe this other person? Not to do what they think I should do, but what I do owe them is to love them and honor them. So I think, Thomas, these are thoughts about as we mature as people and as we mature in our calling, we learn how to negotiate in a way that um, more and more preserves the order. Yeah, Tom. Um, there's a lot of talk about the apostle, the apostolic, the gifted, or the prophet. One of my questions is, it seems like what we see in scripture, if somebody was an apostle, they knew they were an apostle. If somebody was a prophet, they knew they were. They weren't walking around wondering, is this message from God? Maybe they're wondering, do I really want to deliver it? But they're not wondering, is this message from God? They're not wondering, was I sent by God? What's changed now? Like, what what is it that now in that role needs to be identified or needs to be coped or needs to be encouraged or developed? That's confusing to me. Okay, the question is, let's see if I get it right. The, 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 the question is, it seems that there was a time when if you were an apostle, you knew you were an apostle. If you are a prophet, you knew you were a prophet. And it seems that what we're talking about is maybe I am, maybe I'm not, and uh, I'm not quite sure whether I am or not. How will I know? And so your question is, you know, is that really right? How do we know? Is that the right question, Todd? Or just what's, what's different about those terms now? What's different about the terms now? Well, I think that's a great question, um, and, and, and one of the things that we're trying to suggest in what we've said here, the, the, I think one of the problems is the word apostle was largely unused for a significant period in church history. Actually, the word, the adjective, was used. I mean, the the traditional church speaks about apostolic leadership, but not the word apostle. And so um, a modern understanding has been, you know, that God is restoring apostles. And then you get those who say, oh no, God's not restoring apostles because there were only uh, 12 new, in the new that wrote the New Testament. So you get all this confusion about that. And so what we're trying to do is press forward in a way that helps us to understand this awesome gift of Christ to the church in terms that free the understanding but don't trigger unnecessary conflict and also arrogance. I mean, if I go around saying I'm an apostle, that's also a dangerous thing. That, that can be fed by arrogance. So if a person is sent by God when we're looking to find and develop and coax that person, are we catching them before they receive the commission from God or they already been commissioned and then we're trying to help develop that give courage to that, like what part of the process is that usually discovered because it would seem like someone who actually was commissioned by God would have had some kind of very vibrant, real encounter with God and how they were what they're saying to do 
vivid interaction with God, but we don't have a doubt of what we have to say, then we lack the courage to do it. That, that's what I'm, I guess, I'm trying to figure out. So, say that in ten words. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. <laughs> trying to repeat it. <laughs> no, you're doing fine. I'm just. Uh, well, um, the 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 process that we. A, what you're saying is very very good. The process that we laid out had calling at at the front. Calling. Now, calling is an experience where you hear God and you know you have heard God. Um, sometimes call or calling needs to be confirmed in our own hearts. Sometimes when we hear God, you know, one month later we wonder, well, you know, was that really God? So we ask God for confirmation. And when the calling is definitely there, the calling will be confirmed by the community around us. But um, let's not lose the point that you are making, Todd, which is so right. We are talking about people who have heard from God in a way that is absolutely unmistakable and unavoidable. We have heard from God. So what we are talking about here is how to see that calling confirmed, how to see that calling developed, because Receiving the calling doesn't result in the mature expression of the calling. So there is a process where the calling is progressively matured. And we're looking for the mature expression. Does that answer your question? So it's a little bit different than when Paul, for example, said, I didn't consult with any man. I know Paul is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah. He got knocked off a horse on the way to Damascus. Yeah. Yeah. It got confirmed three days later. Yeah. And he and he went home. I mean, he was in the desert 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't get. He, people came and got him. The the, the council of Jerusalem sent to to get him, and they confirmed who was. And then they went to. Antioch, and he ministered there for years, and then they affirmed him and sent him out. No, I'm talking about the part where he says, I didn't consult with flesh and blood. I didn't consult with anybody else to determine if this was real. I had a real encounter with the living God. I know who I am. I know who he made me. He wrote that 20 years later. That's from that encounter. He didn't say that that day. He didn't know what was happening that day. I mean, he didn't know the full dimension of I think I think what you're saying, Todd. I, I think what Jason's saying is absolutely right, and I I, I, I want to affirm what you're saying. When I, I think what Paul was saying is, look, I have heard from God. I didn't hear this from man. I heard this from God, and I know I heard it from God. There's no doubt in my mind that I heard it from God. I didn't get uh, from anybody else, and I didn't go ask anybody else if it was okay. So there is that. Just me and God were in the room. But that call had been confirmed. When he says, I didn't consult it, he didn't mean that I hadn't had any contact with anybody else. There, there was the affirmation of that call on a fairly wide level. So both of those are true. It's not, gee, I think I'm called, what do you think? It's not that. 
It's, I know in my heart that I've been called, and I'm waiting for the um, expression of that to be felt in the community as, a, as an affirmation or a sign of God's timing to go forward. And, and, and let, me, let, let, me, let me say this, and maybe we, somebody else here maybe want to say it. Another thing came up in our Lectio group, gifting, we will see our gifting reflected in the people that we minister to. We had a brother, here's another story, real quick. We had a brother on the Logos who was an incredibly gifted cook. He had a spiritual gift of cooking. I mean, the guys were loading the vans 11 o'clock at night, and he'd be out there, you know, with scrambled eggs. I mean, he had a spiritual gift of cooking. And the day came when he came to me and said he wanted to teach. And it made me really sad because I was just sure that he did not have the gift of teaching. But, you know, we gave him some opportunities to teach, and people fell asleep. If, if you have the gift of teaching, people will learn. If you don't have the gift of, if you don't have the gift of teaching, what? See, somehow the message had gotten to him, teaching is higher than cooking. That's not true. So our gift is reflected in the community. And that calling is reflected in the community. But that doesn't mean that we're asking the community, gee, was I really right. Andy, did you want to say something or somebody over here? Yeah, I'm just going to comment that when we dis discuss these kinds of things, we have a tendency to um, think that, that how God calls a person or develops that calling is always the same same way. It's almost like a formula, you know, that, and I, my experience anyway, um, has been that God calls people in quite different ways, um, and the development of that calling emerges in different ways, and you might not even call it a calling, you know, you just might call it, this is what I am feeling or this is what you, God puts you in a position and pretty soon you have effectiveness or you have some form of influence you begin to, to sense that God is calling you so I think when we and, and I also think that when you're at a point of apostolic leadership and you're looking to raise up leaders it's very important not to, tr not to uh, uh, see people uh, in other words, affirm the diversity of how God works in people's lives in bringing things about. Yeah. Um, so Paul's experience on the road to Damascus is obviously quite unique, but it isn't necessarily the normative way that God would call somebody. Um, I, and the word calling is a very interesting, depending on what tradition you're going coming from too. Some people say, oh, I was called by God at the age of 13, you know. In other words, God kind of called you. I I have a tendency to to see it as your scope of vision. In other words, an apostolic leader, you know that you're you well, you might not call it that, 
but your experience and your the gifting is that you have a very broad vision and you don't know where that comes from it comes from God it's a gifting of a vision and so all I all I just wanted to comment is that we don't want to bring calling or how things work in everybody's life the same way or think it happens the same way I just think it's, I just think it's an important question because one of the things that is a ramification of it is is how you relate to and respond to the person with that role. In other words, if somebody is an apostle, they have a form of authority you really would want to trust, respect, submit, listen to. If somebody was a prophet, you would really want to hear what they had to say. They would have a sense of that authority, that calling. You'd be like, gosh, I really need to hear what this person says. They're a prophet. God's speaking through them. Or, or this person's a... That's, that's why I think it's important is it would, it would come with some form of authority. George, I'm wondering if we have we, we have uh, a couple of different kinds of questions being asked. We have, I've heard it reflected in several different people of uh, saying, you know, well, we know a couple of people around that we would say, no, this person has apostolic gifting in this room. They're, they're older, they've been an athlete, they've been doing for a good amount of time. And then we have others saying, I'm not, I don't think I've got the apostolic gifting. But when the question really is, is God calling you to initiate a new work? Oftentimes, um, Andy, I think that there's that broad vision, and people initiate a narrow work that then begins to broaden without realizing how much it's going to broaden as they go forward. And I wonder if it would be helpful for us to talk about the distinction between a, a, a sense of calling to initiate a new work and the uh, and the later ability to say we see apostolic gifting in this person is that a helpful distinction? I, I think it is. Of? I think it is. And I, I think let, let me respond to that real quick. And then I, I think I think what Andy's saying is 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 absolutely right. You know, the way Paul was called is unique. Probably the way all of us are called are unique. The thing that's common is that when we really connect with the calling, we know that we've gotten it. But another thing, Todd, in what you're saying, knowing that we've gotten it and wanting people to call us that, I think are two different things. I, I, I watch mature apostolically gifted leaders and very, very often they would not take that category to themselves. Others might recognize that in them. But there's a there's a hesitation to take that yourself, lest it be somehow arrogant or inappropriate or misunderstood. That doesn't mean ambivalence. It's far better for somebody else to say that about you than for you to say it about yourself. Now, Mark, um, what, what you're saying makes me come back to, um, I just lost it again. Uh, oh, we talked about, um, in, in, in yesterday's lecture, we talked about um, 
Apostolic leaders are called by God, and apostolic leaders carry vision given to them by God. And I hear these two different things in what you're saying. In other words, there is the calling to initiate and to function in this way. And then there is the calling to specific initiation. And that ties in a little bit with what Thomas's question was, because um, it's really important that we get that right, that God has called us to initiate a certain thing and to get the timing of God. God may call us to initiate something, but it's not the time yet. And I think a key part, we could put this, I think a key part of apostolic ministry is patience, waiting on God's timing. So I, I think there is both. I think there's this broad thing that Andy referred to, kind of what we would call in secular terms a big picture mentality, but there's also the call to the specific. And with the specific, we need to be really clear in our own hearts that God's called us to that, that we've gotten God's time, and we've gotten God's team around us to do it. wonder if uh, we were to find them weather at the moment. Let's take uh, let's take a brief break and come back. There, there's a number of questions I think I would like to ask and several others would like to ask and questions I would ask of, of other people. I, I, you know, I want to ask David Hunter a question in you know, from the, the teaching here having to do with repairing foundations. And, and you know, I think there's a number of those kinds of questions we may want to continue to talk about. And, uh, and I just would confess I may be creating more anxiety about the weather than is appropriate, and uh, <laughs> just maybe, and so uh, I don't want to, I don't want to cut short what the Lord is doing and wanting to teach us here, um, with, with no uh, apparent cause, um, so um, perhaps uh, we could uh, get David Saunders to close us with just a moment of prayer at this point, and then we'll take, you know, about a 10 minute break here and, and come back. Father, we thank you for this time together this afternoon and thank you that the understanding that you've given us and development in our personal lives and as a, a network together this growth and grace and our knowledge of you and an understanding of your call upon us so seal Lord, seal every good word that's been spoken anything which is not relevant that we can quietly forget but seal the Holy Spirit we receive thank you in Jesus name Amen